Made to be Broken, Episode 12. You're listening to Made to be Broken, where we explore the human side of law school and the law. And I'm your host, Andrew Ligon-Fant. Today's guest is Martin Kowick. Martin's a third-year law student at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. Martin and I were classmates at West Point. We graduated in 2011, and we really got to know each other when we both went to the Army Reconnaissance Course in 2012 at Fort Benning, Georgia. I talk to Martin almost every day, and I've been looking forward to this episode. We're going to talk about some research he's done on the duty to rescue at sea. Don't prejudge it. It's extremely interesting, and I hope you enjoy it. Martin, welcome to the show. For people who don't know you, can you give us a brief uh, background on who you are? Yeah, sure. My name is Martin. I am a uh, 3L at the South Texas College of Law um, in Houston, Texas. I uh, I used to be the in the Army, and I did that for eight years. I was an infantry officer and then uh, decided to make the switch to uh, the legal field. So, so here I am. Yeah, and we were classmates at West Point, actually, but we didn't know each other that well at, at school. Um, our background is we went to the Army Reconnaissance Course at Fort Benning together in 2012, I guess. Was that June of 2012? Something like that? Yeah, um, June of July. June so it, was, July. it was hot as hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was really hot. Um, and then that's kind of where we became friends and we've stayed in touch kind of since then, um, which has been really cool. Uh, Martin came and we did some backpacking over Christmas break and I plan to go out to Houston to visit at some point, but it's been, uh, we've been friends for some time. So yeah, you're at South Texas and you're on, you're on law review down there, right? Can you tell us about law review? And, uh, a lot of the people who listen to this are not lawyers aren't, and some of them aren't law students. So what's law review and, uh, give us a sense of what role it plays both in law school and in the, in the legal world. And then, uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, I think law review, I mean, it's basically just a publication that the school runs it's like an academic journal. Uh, and they outsource the editing to the student, the student body, basically. Um, and it gives us a chance to like hone writing and editing skills and whatnot. So that's, that's the basic idea. They, they publish articles from like professors and lawyers and other types of practitioners, um, uh, sometimes judges. And theoretically, the idea is that they help improve the quality of uh, you know, judicial decisions in the legal profession generally by like sitting down and thinking about these problems and writing long form, you know, articles about various topics. So the, the people on law review are students at the school. Um, and there's usually, I'm not sure if this is every school. Uh, I haven't done like a survey of like every single law review out there, but, uh, for my college, South Texas college of law, we had a write on. So you had to have a minimum GPA, and then uh, you did this right on process. And if you got selected from that, then you are a, uh, a member of the law review. So cool. Yeah. Here, at, I don't know what you guys have at South Texas at Georgia. We have Georgia law review. We've got the journal of intellectual property law, which is the journal I'm on. And then we have the, um, the Georgia international law journal. I hope I got that right. Something like that. Um, so we, we have uh, law review journals as well. And you kind of reference this, but just so everyone knows, these articles are sometimes cited in judicial decisions, so they can be like persuasive authority um, that lawyers actually argue to judges. So you can find them in judicial decisions now and then, but it's it's kind of how the, the industry shares ideas. Um, it's interesting, though, because law, I think, might be the only field where the journals are managed and edited by students. Uh, in most fields, they're that's not the case, but in law, it's kind of unique in that sense. Um, so you mentioned that most of the notes, uh, it's what they call articles in law reviews, are submitted by lawyers, and then they're reviewed and edited and approved by students. Um, but also students can write notes and comments and stuff like that. Can you give us an idea of what that looks like? A note is just a, it's like an article about a case. So you're analyzing a case. Uh, and you usually give the background for it. You talk about the judge's decision and their reasoning for it. And then you comment or you analyze the, the judge's decision, their, their reasoning behind their holding. 
and then recommend uh, that it be overturned or sustained on appeal. Um, a comment a, is more of like a, it's like a recommendation for a change in the law. Um, so that's going to be more theoretical, um, draw on a whole bunch of sources rather than focus on one particular case. Uh, so we wrote a note as a part of our right, uh, the write-on process. And then we are doing a comment while we're on the law review. So, so a comments uh, more in depth than a note. Is that right? Well, I, guess, I mean, I guess you could always do a note as in depth as you wanted to, but sure. given the given what a comment is doing, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're arguing for you know some type of change in the law, you're going to have to draw on a whole bunch of whole bunch of cases. Yeah. Um, and so that's why there are some comments that I've seen that are they're practically books. You know, it's like hundreds of pages. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, generally speaking, a comment's going to be more in depth than a note, at least at least from what I've seen. So one of the things we're talking about today, or really the primary topic, the reason we're doing this is because you wrote a uh, comment, right? I guess it would be a comment. Um, sure. Yeah. On on maritime law, which you you sent to me, uh, you sent me a draft, and I was like, oh boy, this is going to be brutal and boring. But in fact, it wasn't. It was actually really interesting. Um, once I got into it, it's it it really captured my attention. So. Uh, can you give us a background? Like, how did you how did you come up with that uh, topic? Did you do this as a part of a team, or was it an individual effort? Uh, this is an individual effort. I uh, so I had to write an assignment for uh, for a law review, and so I was trying to come up with a, with a you know topic. And um, my parents, I think I was having my my parents for one weekend. They live in San Antonio, and maybe my brothers are there. I can't remember, but they were watching a documentary about the Titanic incident, and there was a discussion about the Carpathia in California who were two nearby ships who went to the rescue basically of everyone who was stranded out there. And the, the Carpathia and the Californian both had kind of like diametrically opposed reactions to the incident. Um, the Carpathia got a message from a, a distress message from the Titanic and turned around and basically went toward the Titanic at, at its full speed. Whereas the car, uh, excuse me, the Californian, they, <laughs> their, uh, telegraph operator had gone to sleep. And so they didn't get the message and the people they had on deck didn't comprehend what was happening. They, the, the California was actually within visual distance of the Titanic. I think it was anywhere from 17 to 20 miles away, which, uh, trying to recreate where two ships were. Uh, in the ocean with no landmarks in 1912 is not a precise science, but yeah, and they, they can see the, the fire tracking, obviously, right? And they have GPS till yeah. a century later, well, almost. Yeah, they're they're using uh, basically the stars to determine yeah. their uh, their exact position back then. But um, but the California could see the fireworks from the yeah. Titanic, and and when you say fireworks, yeah. these were like emergency fireworks. Is that right? Uh, signal emergency or what was it right? Yeah, there? I mean the crew of Titanic was shooting up fireworks. As, yeah. You know, trying to make as much commotion as they could. Uh, there wasn't a standard signaling convention back then for like what various signals, at least fireworks, uh, what they meant. Um, so, okay. So, so the Titanic yeah. hits an iceberg. I think everybody knows kind of the general background. They've seen Titanic. They've seen, I don't know how accurate that is, but they've seen uh, movies and documentaries. Uh, like you said, the Carpathian, the Californian were in the area at that time in, we said it was 1912, right? Yeah, correct? 12. Yeah. In 1912, was there a duty to, um, did Californian or Carpathia have a duty imposed on them to go rescue the people on the Titanic or no? So that is where, so I actually didn't know. I was watching that and my parents were talking about it and I was like, wait a minute, what is the right answer? <laughs> you know, legal yeah. answer to this, uh, to this conundrum. So I started doing research on it and then I. Well, because real, real quick in the common law, generally speaking, there's no duty to rescue, right? Right. So for some people that may sound strange, but generally speaking on land, you do not have a duty to be a good Samaritan. Uh, in, in other words, and when we say duty, what we're saying is a legally enforceable claim. So you can't go into court and sue someone because they didn't pull you out of the burning house or your, your estate or family. After, if you become, if you die from that, they right. can't sue you because you stood by and did nothing. Um, so like in some, I don't know, you know, you, you know, YouTube or live league video, the person filming the disaster cannot be sued 
for not putting the phone down and going to try and help. Uh, however, that generally has not been the case at C. At C, there's a little bit of a different um, philosophy by the courts. Now, in 1912, when this occurred, I think there was still some debate about whether or not to impose this duty to rescue at sea. And actually that same year, coincidentally, that same year, there was a convention, a treaty that was up for debate in the Senate, the United States Senate, the Senate passed it. And that same year we have a statute in title 46 uh, U S code section 2304, which does impose a duty on any master of a ship to rescue anyone that the master finds uh, in distress. So now you do have a, so at that time you would, there would have been no legal, at least statutory duty to, to rescue on part of either ship. Yeah. And so the, the origin of this uh, statute came from what the salvage act of 1912, or I guess that, that the, is the yeah. statute. Uh, there was a treaty, you yeah. said like a convention, uh, international, yeah, convention. the international salvage convention, international salvage it, convention that was yeah, actually unrelated to the Titanic, right? That didn't come out of the Titanic disaster, did it? No, it was coincidental that yeah, that, it was. Uh, I believe you, it was yeah. already being developed when the Titanic sank. Right. The convention. W- the convention was signed uh, in 1910, and then I the see. U.S. Yeah, yeah. signed it, and then it was up for debate in the Senate the same year, 1912. As I, I don't know why 1911 they didn't debate it, but 1912 they were. It was up for ratification in the in the U.S. Senate. Well, it's kind of a. I mean, it's kind of a niche topic. Most people probably didn't care about. They don't think it affects them. Um, and the government moves slow. It's the DMV. Um, so, sure. Well, it's a news topic until a giant, the, well, the most famous giant, you know, steam liner in the entire right. world hits an iceberg and then there's 700 people in need of rescue. Then it becomes, you know, no longer a niche topic, but. Yeah. So, um, so they passed 46 USC section 2304 after the Titanic happens, but at the time they had no duty to rescue. Um, so that brings us into the... They did not have a statutory duty to rescue. A statutory duty, duty to, rescue. to rescue, right. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah, again, when, when when I say duty, I don't mean they didn't have a moral duty or an ethical duty. I mean I mean a legal duty. Like Marcus Well, there might, have e- there might even be a common law duty uh, before that, but... Is that what Prosser and Keaton were talking about when they said uh, there may be a duty to rescue if they have knowledge of the peril... And can right. it so, convenience. Yeah. So Prosser and Keaton uh, identify in their their hornbook, uh, which a hornbook is just like a it's like a textbook, a compilation of a whole bunch of different law on a certain topic. But those two professors identified a test where courts have have imposed a duty to rescue, or at least have, have been inclined to do so. So that's what I mean by there might have been a common law duty to do this, even if there wasn't a law passed by Congress yet. But under the Prosser and Keaton formulation, the Californian and Carpathian, Carp- sorry, Californian and Carpathia probably didn't meet that, right? Because correct, the, yeah. correct. Okay, yes. so talk, talk us through the Prosser and Keaton formulation before we move. There, yeah. So their their test here is uh, is two elements. The first one is the would be rescuer has knowledge of a serious peril that threatens death or great bodily harm to the victim and element two, the would be rescuer can mitigate that peril with little inconvenience. And so the rub is in that situation, could California and Carpathian affect that rescue with little inconvenience? Probably. And I think the answer is no. Yeah. Um, And the reason for that is that, uh, so a little bit more background on, on what happened was and by the way, it's easy for us to sit here and, you know, in an air conditioned room, you know, a hundred years after the fact and cast aspersions. But, you know, when you're one of the hot seat, you know, the man in the, re- the arena, so to speak, you, a lot of this becomes much more difficult. So the reason why this becomes much more difficult for the Californian is they had actually stopped for the night. So they, they went up and they encountered the same ice field that Titanic eventually hit and they stopped, they blasted out on their telegram or telegraph device, their position and give a warning to all the nearby ships that there's, there's an ice field here and we're stopping for the night. We're not risking uh, trying to sail through this. Um, so that becomes the, you know, the issue with that second element, can you do this with little inconvenience? And I mean, the answer really is no, because the, the risk of you also <laughs> slamming into an iceberg, trying to race off to the rescue of Titanic is extremely high. Yeah. So it took, I, th- uh, I believe it took Carpathia four hours to navigate through the ice field. And 
so that when they reached that Carpathia was the first ship to reach Titanic and they ended up rescuing everybody. I think six, six ships in total, uh, turned, they got the distress message from Titanic and, and sailed over there. Uh, nobody was left alive though when the other ships got there, but, uh, it took Carpathia four hours. And what the captain did was he went at full steam, but he took every other member of the crew who wasn't needed, uh, in the engine room and put them out on the deck or on the bridge. And so they were all looking for icebergs. Um, so he had basically his entire crew watching for icebergs. And Carpathia um, was, was another cruise liner. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah California. And I don't think it, I think that one was a, some type of early 20th century container ship. Uh, uh, cause it, it didn't have uh, passengers on it. It just had the crew. Um, um yeah, the pictures of took, the California yeah, also look like a, yeah, it does look like a, a container ship or some sort of cargo ship. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the only people on board that were the crew. Um, at least my understanding, but so yeah, I, I think to answer your question, to go to go back to your original question, there probably is a good case that neither ship is under any kind of common law or case law duty to rescue in the, in this scenario. Uh, the iceberg threat itself probably, probably stops any duty from being imposed on them. Yeah. Cause generally the common law isn't going to require that people be heroes. I mean, it's, it's going to require basically reasonable action in most scenarios, but it's not going to require you to put yourself in danger to rescue somebody else um, with a few exceptions. And, and I know you, you talk about that, but there are exceptions. Like if there's a special relationship between the two, uh, between the victim and the would be rescuer, if there's a voluntary undertaking, like a security guard or something like that. Um, or if, if you put somebody in peril, so say you're a drug dealer and you deal somebody bad, bad drugs and they, you know, take them in front of you and they pass out, you're probably going to have a common law duty to rescue that person. Um, I don't recommend dealing bad drugs, but you never know who listens Only good to ones. Only, Only good, good ones. drugs. Only the good stuff. Um, <laughs> and so also like lurking, when you, when you look at common law, often there's also like an economic rationale lurking behind this stuff. And you identified that as, uh, which, which is interesting. I hadn't really thought of it before, but um, at sea, uh, there, there was this heightened duty at sea typically. Um, and at, at sea, there's a higher risk of total loss of property and lives, whereas right. on land, there's not. So in a, you know, in a car wreck or in, in, in most emergencies on land, you don't have a risk of total loss, whereas at sea, you do. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting, the, the economic rationale there. Yeah, there, there's a few cases that, I, that identify that and then a few articles that identify why trying to explain why courts have been a little more likely to impose a duty to rescue at sea. And that's one of them is that, uh, when you, when you do all the math on, you know, net value to society, and this is getting into some like consequentialist ethics here, but it is how judges think though, often, right. Especially so some, if, some schools have thought more so than others, but there are particularly, uh, economic intensive schools of thought in the law. Like I think from the university of Chicago, they're known, I believe they're well known for their economic analysis of, of law. And it's it's one way to look at it. It's how judges think about it. But go ahead. Right. But basically, when you consider, like if you imagine a, a hypothetical uh, emergency on land, once the emergency is over, all other things equal, the property and people are still likely to be there. Yeah. And so they, they can be saved in, in, or reused for property uh, much more easily. Whereas if there's a an emergency at sea, if no one comes to the rescue, the likelihood, all of, all our things equal is everything is lost. Everybody's going to die and all the property is going to be completely destroyed. And so it, it, it does make a, make a sort of economic sense to say, look, there's a higher density of rescue, um, you know, services on land. Uh, and you are more likely to find the, the stuff and reuse it. If there's an emergency on land, whereas at sea, the likelihood is when that container ship passes by Tom Hanks while he's floating on the, you know, <laughs> on his makeshift yeah, raft, yeah. that's the only container ship that's going to go by him. Right. So, and if that container ship doesn't save him, he's more likely to, he's, he's dead. He's, dead. he's guaranteed sure. to be dead. Whereas if he's laying on the side of the road, you know, somebody can call 911 or there's probably going to be many more people who pass by him who can help him. So the likelihood of total loss to society is much less on land than it is at sea. And there's some commentators have identified that as a possible reason why courts have been more, even if they don't say so explicitly, why they've been more willing to impose a, a duty to rescue at sea. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so 
as far as the salvage act of 1912 goes it imposed a civil and a criminal penalty on people who who violate their duty to rescue can you give us a brief rundown on what the it imposed a go ahead go ahead sorry it imposed a criminal sanction so two years in in jail and and a private right of action right in tort well so (laughs) yeah here's the thing though i have not been able to find and other commentators have looked as well a single prosecution under that statute right so now part of that could be maybe because prosecutors are charging people with manslaughter um, or some other type of homicide crime, but I couldn't find a single prosecution under section 2304. However, people have used section 2304 in civil suits because you can use that, that section, that code section in negligence per se. So you can, you can use that to say this person owed me a duty because there's a criminal statute. Um, they are required to rescue and the courts have allowed, allowed that to occur. They say, yep, that counts. That's negligence per se. You have to rescue because there's a criminal sanction. Um, and so that's why they're, they're people have tried to use it for civil uh, lawsuits. Now there is some issue with that. Um, and other commentators have identified the issue with the civil remedy using 2304 because. Well, because if, if somebody violates this duty and, and doesn't render aid, the victim's unlikely to ever be able to bring that lawsuit. Right. So yeah, there's basically three reasons why 2304 as a negligence per se, or any kind of civil, like even just regular negligence um, is, is difficult for the plaintiff because first of all, you need to survive. <laughs> so if the person doesn't rescue you and everything we just said is true about the likelihood of higher loss at sea is much higher then most people aren't going to live. So that's number one, you got to survive. Number two, you have to be able to identify the passing ship that's going by you, right? which is probably easier said than done. You know, especially if you're not familiar with with the ships or shipping well, if, at all. Assuming you don't have binos and the ship isn't within a hundred yards, two hundred yards of you, the chances you're going to be able to read the the name on the ship and the flag it's it's pretty low, especially with waves. And I mean, it's it's almost it, it's absurd, kind of absurd yeah. to think that you'd be able to do. That. So the yeah, so the evidentiary problem with with that is extremely high. Yeah. The third thing is you have to get a court to assert jurisdiction. And so you have to be able to fight all the, the, you know, the personal jurisdiction battle with that. And so when you combine those three elements, those three problems, you got to survive. Number one, number two, does, you does the able- salvage act not establish a court that you can bring these claims in? Well, federal courts have admiralty in the U S federal courts have admiralty jurisdiction. Okay. But, gotcha. uh, so you'd bring, uh, you'd bring this claim in like a district court somewhere. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and I, I assume in, you would just yeah. bring it in the it wouldn't be the same personal jurisdiction um analysis as we see in like international shoe wouldn't you just couldn't you be safe and bring this in a in the state in which the you know shipping company is headquartered yeah so there's you can do all that yeah. uh you know we can go down the personal jurisdiction rabbit hole i think what the we commentators are identifying is that you got to also get over that hurdle sure so you know you, you gotta live the, tom hanks the, has to live yeah the deck stacked against yeah. you kind of yeah, the, the Tom Hanks has to live. He's got to be able to identify that that passing ship left him and Wilson in the water. And remember. And then and then also he's got to fight the jurisdictional battle. So that's where using 2304 as a civil remedy can be difficult. And those same evidentiary issues exist with using it as a criminal remedy as well, or a criminal sanction. Is that right? I mean, for a prosecutor to bring criminal yeah, there's overlap suit, you'd there. have to, yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd kind of have the same issue where you'd have to show you know, that the ship did pass by this person, which is difficult. And you'd also have to find the person and know they fell overboard. Right. Um, yeah. But I was looking at the criminal fine. It's interesting. It's, it's a thousand dollars and up to two years in prison. It seems really low to me. Um, it's definitely low, uh, lower than I would expect in 2020 or in, you know, for 2021 money. But even if you go back to 1912, that's about 27,000 to $30,000 in today's money. That doesn't seem that expensive given the uh, operating cost of a large ship. I get the two years in prison would not be good, but this reminded me a little bit of the NFA tax stamp, the National Firearms Act tax stamp, which was like $200. I think it might've been, was it the same year? 19, no, it was 1938, I think. Um, they imposed a $200 tax stamp and they haven't changed these fines at all, which is interesting to me. Um, have you seen, you know, what, what does this incentive structure actually do? Does it deter uh people from ignoring shipwrecks or does it what exactly does it do well unfortunately 
<laughs> everything you just identified, it's probably why we've seen zero prosecutions under it, or at least I can find zero prosecutions under the statute. But the, the other problem with the criminal sanction, and I'm not necessarily saying that we should get rid of it, but the other problem with it is that because of those evidentiary problems, and because people don't want to go to jail, you know, for two years, it sort of, it may actually increase the, the incidence of willful blindness that we see where people ignore Tom Hanks because the only thing that's going to happen is I can get in trouble here. So let me just pretend I didn't see him and just keep going. Um, Which is willful blindness is really hard to prove too. Um, Cause you would actually right. have to prove that that crew saw the person, which unless you have somebody come out and, you know, rat the others out, that's been pretty difficult. Right. Right. So I, I yeah, again, that, basically what we're identifying is the evidentiary problems here are potentially insurmountable and maybe they are insurmountable because we have zero prosecutions. So, so what, how have we seen this play out? Um, you talk about a couple different scenarios where we see this isn't necessarily specifically our salvage act, but, um, how did the Japanese commercial vessels react to this during the Vietnam during the 1970s Vietnam? Right. So that, that, uh, issue with willful blindness yeah. is, or just, is a, or just avoiding the entire area. Right. Right. So, yeah. uh, there was actually a case I'm going to quote it here. I got it written down from, uh, 1854, a, uh, federal district judge said, uh, and we're going to get into why rewards are necessary, but he, he's hinting at it. But public policy requires that a reward shall be held out so that a sailor competent to render relief shall be eager to do so and shall not be tempted to pass the victim by. So this gets into what you were talking about, the Japanese uh, shipping companies. So I found a New York Times article from the 70s. Well, actually, let me back up a second. I read, I read an article by Judge Posner a long time ago where he predicted that profit, in his article, profit maximizing firms what they'll do is they'll just avoid areas with a high enough likelihood of rescue events occurring. So if you're trying to reduce costs and maintain your schedules, you don't want to run into rescue events because your ship has to stop, has to get these people on board, which by the way, can take a lot longer than you would think. Um, and so he predicted that. Well, anyway, I went, well, I actually- Not to mention, I, just to back up real quick, but it's also yeah. dangerous. And this is one thing it a lot can of people, be dangerous. It can be very yes. dangerous. Even rescuing people on land is extremely dangerous uh, in almost any scenario. You know, you everybody's heard the story about the lifeguard who gets drowned by the, you know, this is why lifeguards approach you from behind because rescuing people is dangerous. Rescuing people at sea is probably even more dangerous. I mean, you've got hazards. There's a reason that ship went down. So often you're going to have, um, in, in the Titanic's case, you're going to have icebergs or... Um, you know, things like that to navigate, but it's, it's dangerous. So you've got these sailors who are thinking, hmm, uh, I can either stop and put myself in danger to save this person I don't know, and I don't necessarily owe a due, or I can avoid, I can be willfully blind, or I can avoid the error. Right. So, so I, uh, yeah, so I read Professor, or I'm sorry, Judge Posner's uh, article, or he may have been a professor back then, but, uh, and he's identifying all of what you just said, and this is why people would just want to avoid rescue events, at least shipping companies. And so I found a uh, New York Times article talking about the situation in, in Southeast Asia in the late 1970s. So when the communists took over South Vietnam in 1975, there were millions of people who were trying to escape the workers' paradise, um, I guess, because they had, I don't know, false consciousness or whatever the case may be. But they were trying to get the heck out of Dodge. And the one way that people would try to get out is they would just make makeshift boats and rafts and just sail out. Kind of like Tom Hanks. Basically. Like Cuba, kind of. Like We've exactly like Cuba. Cuba. Yeah, exactly like Cuba. So in the late 70s, um, Japanese ships knew that, that this was going on. And so they were deliberately taking different routes, selecting different routes or taking wider routes around away from Vietnam in order to avoid encountering refugees and being forced to take them on board. And there's some quotes from, uh, from people. Let me, let me see if I can. Yeah. Okay. So here's one. Um, the reporter, a New York times reporter asked this guy, the sailor, if they had been ordered not to do that, not to pick up the Vietnamese refugees. And he said, no, there's been no, absolutely been no such order. 
but it's possible that our skippers have been quietly told or maybe encouraged not to not to actively take the initiative to rescue Vietnamese refugees. He continues, I know this may sound weak, but the problem is too heavy for one private shipping firm alone. And then he asked the rhetorical question, are we supposed to set aside our tight sailing schedules? And then later on in the interview, he notes that, quote, they are never grateful. So and he's talking about the Vietnamese refugees there. So again, what we're identifying is basically all the problems that these private shipping companies are encountering that we're, if we create a duty to rescue them and we place it on them, <clears throat> we're not just putting a duty to rescue on them. We're putting all the burdens of rescue on them. Because uh, now they got to take all these, for example, in the, in the refugee context, they got to take a whole bunch of strange people who they don't know onto this ship. Uh, and they may not have enough food, sleeping arrangements, et cetera, depending on the medical equipment, depending on the context. And then they got to depart from their their sailing schedule. First of all, they go pick them up. Second of all, they go drop them off. Uh, I believe there's an international treaty that says you drop off uh, people who are rescued at the nearest port. <clears throat> and when you're talking about these container ships, these commercial ships, some of them have operating costs as high as $20,000 a day. So if it takes you a day to rescue and then two or three days to go out of your way to a different port that you weren't initially planning on going to, you're talking about tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars lost. That's only and an that's operating a, cost. That's only an operating yeah. cost. Not to mention the, and, the consequential costs of that when you delay shipping. Yeah. So one other issue you just hinted at that some, actually there's a case by uh, the famous judge, uh, Learned Hand, where basically courts have determined that they're, they are not going to include in any kind of reward money. And I know we haven't gotten to the reward money yet, but uh, they are not going to include in that any kind of consequential damages. So if your schedule gets jacked up by you rescuing somebody, they, that's too remote. And this gets into like proximate cause analysis sure. and whatnot. But, but what the courts have said is we're drawing the line. It's also here. probably too indefinite. Yeah. Like you, it'd be hard to right. calculate. Yeah. Right. So they're drawing the line at if your schedule gets screwed up and that affects your contracts down the line or something like that. Sorry, we're not including that in any kind of reward money. Um, and so that makes it even more of a burden on some of these ships, especially ones with cargo to stop and rescue people. So for example, there was one case where it took 36, this is the one that Judge Hand was ruling on. It took 36 hours to rescue everyone from this uh, stranded ship. And well, it was stranded and sinking. And they incurred, uh, looks like $3,000 in damages in $1910, which adjusted for inflation is $79,000. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's an entire, you know, yearly salary of somebody, you know, with a relatively high paying job. So, you know, we can, we can sit here and say, oh yeah, you should definitely rescue. But, you know, that's going to have an effect on the way people think when they're actually doing this in, in real life. Of course, so. because in, in like the, you know, and this will kind of take us into the next issue, but like the Japanese sailor hinted at, why should this, this is kind of a, a public problem, if you will. Uh, it's it's everyone's problem. And why should one ship have to bear all the cost? Why should we have to eat that cost yeah. when we're doing something that benefits everyone? Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, so one other one other thing that you you analogized to was the shoot shovel shut up phenomenon with the EPA with EPA regulations. Um, so I think that incentive structures are something that a lot of people don't account for when they think about laws and how that actually ends up affecting what people do. Um, it seems that a lot of people just have this assumption that oh well, if you pass a law, then people will just obey that law and they don't think about secondary or tertiary effects. Um, how, how does this relate to the shoot shovel shut up phenomenon? Yeah. So uh, you're talking about the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, yep. not the uh, EPA, but. Um, uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. So the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Um, yep. ESA. You know, it's again, it's one of those things that, you know, in theory sounds, you know, good. You know, why wouldn't we want to have rules protecting particular endangered species? Uh, however, the way that they created the act was sometimes counterproductive and actually hurt endangered species rather than help them. So there was a whole bunch of costs and bureaucratic regulations and things that applied to your land if there was an endangered species on it. And it made it much more difficult to use your land or to eventually sell it as well. So, so they almost basically the effect of the Endangered Species Act was you had a lien on your property. Yeah. Now I know it's not a legal lien, but that's the effect. So it makes it much more difficult to sell it, you know, if if you need to later on down the road. And so what people were doing was secretly 
making their land unsuitable for habitation by the endangered species because they didn't want the act to apply. So if there's no endangered species act or, or no endangered species on my property, I don't have to have the endangered species act, you know, raining on my parade, so to speak. So the issue there is normally when the government comes in and takes property like eminent domain, most people are familiar with, they're required under the fifth amendment to compensate the property owner for that property. But under the ESA, they would come in, put a lien on your land because you have endangered species there and not compensate you for what it, they don't consider it a taking, but the practical effect on the individual who owns the property is that it is a kind of taking. So people are incentivized there. If, if, if you just think about the secondary uh, uh, effects there, people are incentivized to, guess what, not have endangered species on their property. So what they do is they make, the, like you said, they make their property uninhabitable for that species. So the ESA, in fact, creates less habitable land for the species it's you know ostensibly trying to protect so it's kind of ironic if you don't consider how humans react to these things you're going to get some weird outcomes right so one i, I know one particular example and i didn't put it in the uh, in my article just for the sake of brevity but <clears throat> one particular example was and i know you're all too familiar with this uh, species as am i but the red the infamous red cockaded uh, woodpecker. woodpecker yeah <laughs> yes so and the what reason the do- reason you're familiar with that is because uh, that's at Fort Benning, right? They have wasn't that Benning? They have all the in- Fort Benning and yeah. Fort Polk. They have oh, uh, I have I haven't been to Fort Polk, okay. uh, but at Fort Benning they've got there, all these yeah. like trees that are marked because they have red cockaded woodpeckers in them, and you have to be you can't like drive into their little habitat if you're in a tank or whatever. But um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, right. So it even puts burdens on military training uh, to it have does. those yeah. uh, red cockaded woodpecker sites uh, in your training areas. But uh, so what people are doing is the red cockaded woodpecker needs a certain type of pine tree. I guess they have to be over like a certain age. I'm not sure what the age is, but they have to be old enough basically, or a particular type of pine tree. And so knowing that one way you can avoid having any red calculated woodpeckers on your property is I just make sure I don't have any of that kind of pine tree on my property. So if you just go around cutting down all the suitable pine trees, uh, for red calculated woodpeckers, you know, you're good. You don't have to worry about red calculated woodpeckers on your property. So the term, I mean, the term shoot, shovel, shut up is more graphic that, I mean, that refers to like literally killing the endangered species and burying it and never talking about it again, but it can even be in less, you know, brutal, uh, in ways that people make it more difficult for endangered species, like cutting down the suitable trees, leaving all the unsuitable trees there. And then you don't have to worry about the endangered species act applying to your property. Yeah. Um, and, and people are going to judge yeah. that pretty harshly. I mean, they're going to say, well, people shouldn't do that. And that's fine. I mean, you can, you can think that, but the reality is that people are going to respond to incentive structures. So whatever, yeah, well, that's the type think, of, What's that? That's the type of thing. That's the type of thing you say if you haven't had to deal with the Endangered Species Act. Sure. Um, or, you know, or a lot of different regulations are like that, but it's easy to judge it. But when most people are just trying to get by and just trying to, you know, put food on the table, uh, you know, protecting a, a species of woodpecker they've never heard of is not really high on the list of priorities. So a lot of, I, th- I just think my only point was a lot of people, I think, fail to consider how regulations and laws actually um, affect people versus just looking at the first order of effects there. Right. So in one fix for this, that some commentators, legal and environmentalists have identified for the Endangered Species Act is, okay, well, why don't we just treat this like a taking and compensate the landowner? Because then we can neutralize this problem and they won't mind having an endangered species on their property because they can get paid for having it on their property. And so my, the reason why I put that in the article is that I analogize that to the problem of rescue. Sure. So I've identified a, a bunch of problems with the rescue at sea. Uh, and rather than getting sailors working against us, what if we got them working with us on the problem by compensating them for their trouble? Yeah. And before we get into the details of, the, of what you think they should be compensated or how you think they should be compensated, um, what, why is it? So there's this weird quirk in um, salvage awards where sailors can get an award for saving property, but not lives. Can you, can you kind of flesh that out a little bit and tell us why is it that sailors are compensated if they save property, but not if they just say a ship sank, they drive by, they see one dude in the water and they pluck him out. A salvage award isn't typically available for that. Why, why is that? 
Yeah. So backing up one step. So the courts in the past and not even in the past, this has gone back for thousands of years. Have I, yeah. have identified the problems that we talked about and said, yeah, we need to compensate sailors rather than imposing this burden on them without any benefit. So. And that goes back, you identified as early as Rhodian law in what, 900 BC. Yeah. So right? in Rhodes so in 900 BC, there's a, there's a code, a, an admiralty code in 900 BC where they would give out a one fifth reward. So if you, if you save some type of cargo at sea, you would get as a reward one fifth of the value of that property. Um, so th this is like an ancient principle we're talking about here. Um, now the problem become, becomes how do you, and it's that, the term for that is called a salvage award. And the problem that gets back to your question is how do we fund this award? So in the past, you could only get the reward for saving property, but not for only saving people. And that sounds like extremely cruel and callous at first. The issue is that when you save property, they can put a, a maritime lien on that property and or force a judicial sale of the property. And then they can use that to get the reward money to pay you for saving it. Okay, but what happens when you save a person who's rescued or who's stranded at sea? Okay, so you rescue them. Where does that money come from? Right. Okay, well, there's there's a couple of different options. One of them is we can force that person to pay. But courts didn't want, in the past, like in 900 BC, didn't want to do that. They, they thought that that was callous. We don't want to make the person who is being rescued have to pay to be rescued. Well, especially um, if you're, because if you're rescuing a sailor whose ship just sank, they probably have no property anyways. And it's not like most sailors are especially have in 900 a ton of, BC. Yeah, and it's not like most sailors are going to have a lot of money to pay that. So, right. What are, so the, what are the other options? That's why they wouldn't create a salvage award because the salvage award is a court order saying you will give a reward. You, the person who owned that cargo and lost it at sea, will give a reward to the person who saved it. And they didn't want to do that with people. So, that's been a constant problem. Like, how do we solve this issue? Uh, throughout history. And there's a couple people who have tried to come up with different solutions. Um, so one of them in the British did this was they came up with a, a fund, a, a salvage fund that was funded by, um, it was funded by a, a national licensing scheme. So every boat that went out to sea would have to pay, would have to get licensed and pay a, basically a tax. And that money would go into the this fund. And then anytime there's a rescue, you can, you can make a claim on that fund. So that does help solve the problem. You can make a claim, excuse me, you can make a claim on that fund if you rescue only people. So if you rescue property, you just do the same process of getting a maritime lien. But if you rescue people only, you make a claim on that fund and, and get the reward from there. And so that solves the problem of, okay, well, how do we incentivize rescue of people only? And it gets rid of the problem of we force the victim to pay for the rescue. Right. The problem at least that I identify with this is we got to create a whole new federal program in order to do this. And that's not the most insurmountable problem on planet earth, but I'm just pointing out that is a problem. You know, now we have to, all the problems of managing the fund we now have. Cre creating a, it, it also is expensive to administer these kinds of programs. So a lot of the money that could be going towards rescuers would be going to administrators and creating a new like federal program is just, I don't think it's almost ever the most elegant solution. Probably never. So yeah. And then the other thing with it is that you're basically reimbursing yourself. So the people who are going to be doing the rescue oh, sure. most of the right. time are going to be the exact same people who are funding the program in the first place. So right. we're still not really spreading the cost. So still the ship, shipping industry, the, the problem identified by that Japanese sailor is still kind of there in that the shipping industry is um, bearing the burden of rescuing, not only if it were only like other people in the shipping industry, maybe it would seem more fair, but also pleasure craft or, you know, and any kind refugees, of refugees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the problem is the less acute, obviously, you know, it's a question of the margins, you know, to some extent, but it's still, the burden is all on them. Yeah. So I think that this licensing fund would be better than what we have. However, I think there might be better solutions. Another solution that I found from one commentator, I think back in the 1950s was uh, he, uh, yeah, so his his solution was, well, why don't we have the Coast Guard fund this? Sure. And so the Coast Guard does rescue gratuitously, but we can imagine, you know, changing the law so that when they do rescue property, not lives, but when they do rescue property, they also get a salvage reward for rescuing that property. 
And if they do that, what if we take the money that the Coast Guard makes from from property salvage awards and use that to fund to to put money in that fund that people can draw from if they only rescue people? Um, so I think that would help. That his his solution here would help. The problem I think is twofold. Number one, now we're changing the Coast Guard's long tradition of rescuing people and property for free gratuitously, which, which I don't the, think in, is isn't the end of the world. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. However, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a value judgment on my part, but I think it is a kind of a good thing that the Coast Guard will just rescue anybody, well, including their things for because, free. Also because um, the, the public already pays for it. So the public's already paying you for know, it. They say it's gratuitous, yeah. but really it's already paid for. So right. if they're also getting a salvage award, they're kind of double dipping in the sense that the people who lost that property probably pay the Coast Guard's uh, bills anyways. So, yeah. Yeah, so anyway... But just to test this guy's, uh, this commentator's theory, I went, I actually went and looked up the stats on how much uh, the Coast Guard uh, saves property wise. Mm-hmm. And I, the stats I was able to find were from 1985 to 2013. And over that time, they prevented the loss of $22.5 billion in property. Now, it initially sounds like a lot, uh, but the figures vary year to year. And sometimes they vary year to year drastically. But the, that annually averages out to about $903 million. Um, if we use that Rodian law, the salvage theory of uh, or theory of salvage <clears throat> at one fifth of value of the property, then the Coast Guard would have $180 million per year in awards. The, the cases I've looked at of what the courts have awarded salvage awards for, you don't get anywhere near one fifth. Um, there's a whole bunch of factors, which I don't want to get into, but a whole bunch of factors about how they determine the salvage awards. And it is, it is kind of subjective and there's some intelligent guessing, but basically you're going to get in the low, like, percent like you know one to three percent type thing okay um not 20 percent. so if we do that if we do a one percent salvage which would be reasonable now we're only talking about nine million dollars a year that the coast guard would be able to to pull in for this reward program that we're talking about and again i'm making a little bit of a value judgment here but i don't really see how raking in on average nine million dollars a year is enough to justify changing the coast guard's practice no, and I'm not, not sure that this, not. and I'm not sure that this would really be enough money to fund the program anyway, because I think that's I can't remember what the number is on the the British program, but it's a lot. I think it's less. So to me, that just doesn't seem like enough to justify changing like the Coast Guard's longstanding practice on this. Sure. So anyway, that so that brings me to my you know good idea fair here about how we we solve this problem, but. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that now. Or yeah, so no, I, I thought your solution was pretty elegant. So I, I kind of agree that if the Coast Guard got salvage awards, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I think it's, it, it, it is what it is. But if it's not even going to be enough money to fund the program, then it's, all, it's also not um, guaranteed. Like you said, it fluctuates a lot. So what happens when the Coast Guard doesn't bring in enough money to fund the program and all this stuff? So I think your solution kind of got around all of that. Um, and that is, do you, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. So my, uh, you know, good idea fair here was why don't we just fund this with an income tax credit? So the basic idea is that you go to court the exact same way we, we normally do this. Yeah. Uh, and you get the court to give you it, to award you a salvage award. The difference is it's going to be an ex parte hearing. We don't even need to waste time bringing in the victim or, or the defendant. An the ex parte owned. just means out of the presence of the other party. Um, so it's just you and the judge. Is the is a property salvage award not ex parte? It's not. No, right? it, no. The 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 person whose property is saved is going to be a defendant in that lawsuit. Right. And obviously, they're going to have an incentive to fight it and try and get the salvage award uh, either as low as possible or not awarded at all. Yeah. So, but my vision though is that. We don't even need to involve them. They don't have to, we don't need to drag them into court except maybe for the purpose of like verifying the you know, property values and whatnot, but that they would just be a witness at that point, not a party. Um, you go, you get the court to uh, award you the salvage reward. Um, the court, you know, gives you a court order. And then what you can do is when you file your income tax, you just, fu- you just submit that court order with your income tax, you know, filing. And that gets included as a tax credit so they just subtract the value of the of the salvage award from your excuse me from your um, income taxes that you owe. So I think the benefit of this is that first of all, theoretically, we can get rid of the defendant. We can get rid of another party. 
So it makes it easier on on them. They don't have to be dragged into court and fight it. They probably just have to what sign an affidavit saying that they were. Yeah, I'm sure they'll have to sign affidavits, something like that. Yeah, or maybe be deposed, but but they they're a witness. But they're they don't have to go hire a lawyer. They don't go right. They don't have to go yeah. hire a lawyer. Yeah, they don't have to go fight it. Yeah, they're just, they. So it's much easier. Not to mention, it might be hard to get a lot of these people into court because if you're rescuing a refugee, for example, you might drop them off at the nearest port, which might be in Indonesia or whatever. So yeah, yeah, it it would avoid a lot of those issues. Yeah. Like that type of person would probably just do the five D's of dodgeball and just never show up. (laughs) Um, Right. So uh, yeah, but, but anyway, so you, you don't, we don't have to involve them as party. Second of all, we already have this program created. The IRS already exists and it already gives out tax credits. So it's not like we're creating some newfangled program or vastly changing the way the Coast Guard works. The, the IRS already does this. Um, they already have a whole bunch of tax credits that are listed in uh, Title 26 of the uh, US Code. And for example, I mean, a few of things you can get are like a first time home buyer tax credit, um, you know, things like that. Uh, foreign tax, if you pay foreign taxes, that's a uh, tax credit you can get. So State this would taxes, just be. I think. I think, yeah, I think state taxes, yeah, or are, are, are one. Um, so this would be an additional tax credit is if you have a court order, a court salvage order, boom, you just file that with your income taxes and you can subtract that from your from your uh, your income taxes. And this, kind of like what we were alluding to earlier, spreads the cost. This is like a taking. We're treating it like a taking. It spreads the cost across all the taxpayers, across all society, rather than pinning the burden on one particular ship or one particular person or one particular industry. Have you considered how this would affect insurance? Um, would shipping insurance have to cover this or um, how would this affect the industry in that sense? So unfortunately that's a, that's a problem that uh, I'm not sure there really is a solution. Um, so if, if we incur, so basically kind of what you're getting at is if we provide the sailors on the ships with a financial incentive to rescue, uh, all those downstream costs that we talked about with that case with Judge, uh, you know, Learned Hand, they're not going to be quite as bad because the sailors will be getting paid. However, they might still happen. So you might still have disrupted schedules and, and increased operating costs and whatnot. Um, so insurance costs would probably have to go up. Now, the, the benefit of insurance taking more of the cost is that, first of all, it spreads it. They, they can, you know, increase premiums and that spreads the cost number one across the industry, but number two to the consumer, which is sort of like, you know, making the taxpayer pay as well. So to the extent that the consumers are buying products that have to be shipped, you know, they're encouraging, you know, people to be at sea and people get stranded at sea. So they're paying a tiny little bit more on the cost of their product um, to fund this increase in, you know, rescue activity. However, this is, this is going to be a a big problem. And at some point we're going to have to say, you know, it just ain't worth it to do this rescue. And so I talk about that in my, in my article as well, where we should amend section 2030304 that has criminal liability and say that if the cargo or the mission of the ship is sufficiently important, the ship does not have to stop and rescue that person. Um, yeah. And this, I mean, this, this sounds harsh, but you actually make a good case for it. And the, the example you laid out is you know, if a ship had a bunch of perishable medical supplies on board and they see one person in the water and if they stop or, you know, whatever the case may be, their medical supplies may go bad. There there could be scenarios out there that are, some of them are theoretical, some are probably real world, but there definitely could be scenarios where it's not worth it to, to save a life. So, yeah. And you can imagine where if we said like, Hey, you, to the, to the master of that ship, you have to stop and pick up this person. And let's say, let's make it even more, you know, crazy. This person who's stranded uh, is on a pleasure craft, you know, and they are there through their gross negligence. Yeah. You know, so they were screwed up. They didn't do maintenance. They went out during a hurricane, you know, add up, they got drunk, you know, add up all the stupid things that somebody can do. And now we're going to tell this container ship that has, you know, $100 million worth of COVID-19 vaccines, let's say, that are desperately needed in India or something, you know, where the virus is really bad right now. Hey, stop stop with your perishable vaccines and go pick up, you know, this moron who didn't do maintenance on a ship and got drunk and went out during a hurricane. And if you don't stop, we're going to put you in jail for two years. That doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. And if they do stop now, you know, all those people downstream at the port don't have access to those vaccines, theoretically. I mean, I know we're gerrymandering this into the worst case scenario, but 
they don't have access to the vaccines. And also now the insurance company's got to pay for a whole bunch of vaccines um, that just went bad. So that's an instance where I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to force people to stop and rescue. Now, the mitigating, the mitigating measure that I thought of was, okay, well, let's modify it to say you don't have a duty to rescue, but you do have a duty to report. So you have to report either that nation's Coast Guard equivalent or a nearby vessel. And once you have acknowledged, if you have a sufficiently important cargo or a sufficiently important mission, you notify them, you say, hey, I can't stop because I have a, a too important of a mission or what have you. You get an acknowledgement from the US Coast Guard or that nation's Coast Guard or a nearby vessel. Okay, now you're good. You're absolved of liability. You can keep sailing. Yeah. Um, so that that's the the fix I, I came in or I thought of for the, the problem that you're addressing, which is this could drastically increase insurance. So we need to have you know some leeway some common sense leeway in, in that and not force people to rescue when it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's really cool. I think, um, I think that's a great idea. And I, this is my first time really being exposed to maritime law. Um, like I said, I thought this was going to be incredibly dry and boring when I started reading, but after, I think I've read it twice, two or three times and it's, I, I, I really like it. So um, when are you going to submit this to get either Will it be published in in your law review, or when will it get? When could it get selected? I suppose. So I'm not 100% familiar with how they decide which uh, student articles get selected. I mean, obviously they can't uh, publish everyone. So I think we have like yeah, you know, 50 some odd people in the law review at, at any given time. Uh, but um, right now, I the the one I sent you was my second draft like second official draft. Mm -hmm. So I'll turn that, I'll turn that in this summer and then uh, next semester they'll decide uh, whether or not they want to, they want to publish it or not. And does your, uh, this counts for your writing requirement. Is that right? Yeah. For, for us, for South Texas College of Law Houston, this law review doubles as your substantial writing requirement. Uh, so I don't, I don't have to take a like yeah. paper seminar or anything like that. I just do law review in this paper. So, yeah, I think a after some investigation, I, I found out that's how it is at Georgia as well. We have a drafting requirement. So we have to take like a drafting class of some sort. And then we have a writing requirement, which they, some people call it capstone. But um, if you write a note for one of the journals that counts as your writing requirement, and that's pretty nice to get that out of the way. Do you, are you going to be on law review next year as well? I'll be on my last semester will be uh, next semester. And then my, so my final semester of law school, I won't be, I'll already be complete with the, uh, with law review. So we only have to do it for four semesters, uh, including summers. So for four semesters. Um, so did you do it one all year? No, I did it. Uh, <clears throat> both semesters oh, 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 two, you said two all year. summers. Yeah. So the I did it both semesters. Of, semester. Right. Right. Gotcha. So both semesters of two all year. And then I'm doing it this summer and then I'll do it first semester of next year. And that'll be my four, four semesters. So, and, uh, I think that they, when they do it that way, I mean, it, I think it's probably a good idea because it lets people get it done quicker and then also allows more throughput. So there's more like spots available for people to, to be on law review. So I'm a fan, but I'm personally benefiting from that program. So maybe I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That's cool. I don't know if we, uh, I don't believe we have a summer program. Uh, do you have anything else on this you want to talk about or? Any questions I didn't uh, ask that I should have asked? Well, I think generally just on the article itself, um, this this took uh, you know quite a bit yeah, of research. How, how much time did yeah. you? Do you have any idea how much time it took you to do this? I didn't clock myself, but and I also didn't. Uh, so I started it last year in in the fall, and, and I haven't worked continuously like every single day or anything like that for the whole period. But so I kind of went in spurts. But you know there there were. Uh, you know, there was a two to three week period in November, a two to three week, excuse me, two to three week period in March, April, where I was working on it every day for quite a bit of time. And uh, how do you how do you organize your thoughts over that long of a period of time on this? Do you take do you have a system of taking notes or how do you do that? So that was an extremely difficult thing that I'm not sure that I've quite, quite uh, perfected yet. But yeah, thought management, or I don't know, whatever the, the right term is on, on this is it w was a problem in and of itself. And so what I tried to do was like every law review article I read or horn book or a case that I read, I had a separate word doc. And anytime I had a note or like a quote I wanted to, you know, keep in my mind or a thought that I had, I would write it in that word doc. 
So I had a whole, a, I mean, a bunch, I don't even, not even sure how many Word documents for like each case, each Word book, each uh, law review article. Now there's still a problem if I can remember like which one I, you know, like where, like later on when I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this, you know, Professor Posner said X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, which article was that of his, you know, and I, yeah. And, and there was a little bit of, you know, wasted time of trying to go back and find it, but that's how I tried to organize it was a Word doc for each source. Um, maybe there's, maybe there's a better way, uh, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. Cool. Uh, I guess if I wanted to be super crazy with it, I could have an Excel matrix or something. That yeah, I use like uh, for a list of each source. When I, I do know, research but... like that, I either use OneNote. Uh, that's the one I normally use. Okay, yeah, I've heard know. about people using that. Yeah, yeah, it's really useful because you can you can link stuff, uh, and it's all searchable. So rather than having like separate separate documents, you have to kind of go through. You can flip through notes really quickly in OneNote. And then I also I just started using a program called Obsidian, which is a little bit different. I'll give you a kind of a rundown on that once I know what I think about it. I haven't used it for long enough to know, but it what's really cool is that you can link between different articles and ideas. Um, so, you know, it's it's a bit more like hyperlinked versus, yeah, that's cool. Well, this has been uh, a lot of fun talking to you. So I will catch you. Yeah, man, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. See you.